Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is February the 12th, 2016, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, time for the Monster Show of the Week. Your questions for the expert council members. I have seven of them on deck today. Great round of, uh, of answers uh, for you guys today. Great variety. All kinds of stuff, cooking, military surplus vehicles, nutritional questions, uh, medical questions. We've got it all for you today. You'll be hearing from the council in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by making sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today is jmbullion.com. When I'm looking for silver or gold... I go to jambullion.com, and I'll tell you why. They're a small enough company that I can personally communicate directly with the president, Michael, at any time of my choosing. And that means as, uh, as someone that's endorsing them, if you ever have a problem that doesn't get resolved by their customer service, which is 99% of the time stellar anyway, I can make sure that it gets taken care of for you. And I think that's really important in my sponsors. Next is pricing. The entire point of buying silver and gold is it's the same, it's the same, it's the same. You get the same Silver Eagle from JM Bullion as you do from Atmex or Monex. It's exactly the same. It's the same purity, it's the same weight, it's the same design, it's the same cut. It is the same. It's like buying a Wilson basketball, whether you buy it from you know Walmart or Academy Sports and Outdoors. It's the same. That's the point. So why pay more? So why not deal with a company that's a small company, that has great customer service, that offers free shipping on all orders, and has better pricing when you're buying the same thing. Now, why silver and gold? I'm not an all-in guy. I'm not the guy that, like, you need to get out of the dollar. They're going to burn it to the ground. It's going to be worthless tomorrow. By the way, give me your dollars and here's some silver. I'm not that guy. But I do know that the plan for our money is a continued devaluation through the process of inflation, which is a hidden tax on the wealth of the American people. And I know that's the case because the former chairman of the Federal Reserve said so on the floor of the United States House of Representatives while being questioned by Ron Paul. He admitted that and said, it's okay. That's the way the system works. It's supposed to work that way. Well, if that's the plan, then my plan is to make sure I have a wealth assurance policy. We talk about insurance a lot, but assurance is, is equally important. And the way I personally do that is I have 10% of my net wealth, roughly, in silver and gold. I recommend that you do something similar. My personal recommendations are that you consider uh, a wealth assurance program of 5% to 10% of your net wealth in hard commodities like silver and gold. And if you need silver and gold, I can't give you a better recommendation than JM Bullion. Check them out today. And remember, members of our support brigade, you do get a discount on larger orders from JM Bullion. Check the benefits section of your MSB account to learn more about that. Sponsor of the day number two today is the TSP Business Directory. If you want to do business with other members of this community, the directory is the perfect place to find them or be found by them. Every business listed in our directory is part of the TSP community. Small businesses providing great products and services for things you probably buy frequently. So doesn't it just make sense to do business with our community when you can? Hey, and when you do business with a Survival Podcast community member on the directory, please leave a review. This will help other members know who to do business with and provides feedback 
back to help all of our community members improve their customer service. The business directory is a spam-free and feature-rich way to find what you need or to be found by those that need what you have. Check out the business directory by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on the directory banner with a tab at the top that says business directory. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. I have the first synagogue in New York City. I have Turnip Townsend's Farming Innovation. And I have Rape Upon Rape, a comedy. Uh, I'm going to read Turnip Townsend's Farming Innovation. Of course, this is the year 1730 because the episode is 1730. And we have all of these here from the awesome Alex Shrugged, who is the number one contributor to TSP Wiki. A little thought on that. Did you know there is an encyclopedia of survival and sustainability available to you? It's at tspwiki.com. And do you know you can take part in it? Yeah, well, I don't know how to edit a wiki. That's all right. Go to the homepage. There's, there's videos that show you exactly how to edit a wiki, and it's not hard. You can make your own pages and contribute to the largest encyclopedia on survival and sustainability available online at tspwiki.com. And it also is the history wiki for the um, episode that was the year. So, Turnip Townsend's Farming Innovation. What would you do if you were sick of high political office and decided to retire? Well, you'd plant turnips, right? Charles Townsend is the second Viscount of Townsend, and he is the British Secretary of State. He guides foreign policy, but it seems he can only reach compromise when he has the upper hand. He has been losing power to the British Prime Minister, Sir Robert Walpole. So he decides to pack it in and join the revolution, the British Agricultural Revolution. He returns to his lands in Norfolk and promotes a four-crop rotation of wheat, barley, clover, and turnips. He says that turnips are better in the ground than in the pot. This type of crop rotation is also called the Norfolk Method. He didn't invent the system. It's Flemish in origin, but the name continues to be associated with it. Thus, he gets the nickname of Turnip Townsend. My Take by Alex Shrug. This happens a lot where a certain idea becomes associated with a prominent person who didn't come up with the original idea, but because of his celebrity or energy in promoting the idea, eventually is thought to be the innovator. This happened with William of Ockham in Ockham's Razor, Benjamin Franklin in the discovery of electricity, and the professional boxing with the Marquise de Queensberry rules. The ninth Marquise of Queensberry did not author the rules of boxing. He simply promoted them because he thought they were needed. The actual author of the rules was John Graham Chambers. Remember him? <laughs> Neither do I. FYI, the Boston Massacre of 1770 was to be, believed to be in reaction to the Townsend Acts of 1767 that punished colonies for not complying with certain British laws, such as quartering of British soldiers. That was a different Charles Townsend, the grandson of Turnip Townsend. Uh, my thought on this, first on the agricultural thing, the turnips are better in the ground. Some of you might mean, well, what does that mean? Well, With this rotation, your primary production are two grain crops, wheat and barley, and they're rotated through so that the disease that affects one does not affect the other in the next rotation. Um, the clover, obviously, most of you would get is a nitrogen fixer and then can be grazed with sheep. The turnips, instead of harvesting the turnips as a food yield, if you leave them in the ground, they have a dramatic ability to reduce the need for irrigation in the next crop. Uh, there's been some work done uh, by Tennessee State University, I believe, or University of Tennessee, one or the other, uh, that really backs that up, that turnips uh, grown while a field is, is left laying as a, as a uh, cover crop are an outstanding aid to the, the ability of that field to require less irrigation. So we kind of figured that out all the way back in 1730, or even before that since Townsend didn't actually invent it. Um, but 
what I've seen in watching some of the old films like uh, Tales of the Green Valley and stuff like that is there's still a yield there to the livestock yield. So as I said, if you grow clover for a season, you can graze it with sheep uh, quite a few times throughout that season and then get a meat yield and a wool yield from it. Well, the turnips can be used to either make silage or be directly fed to ruminants uh, or other animals. So you can still have uh, a yield from turnips without pulling them out of the ground. And turnip greens, as any southern boy knows, are pretty good in of themselves, including at the baby stage and adult stage. So we can take the greens as a yield, still leave the root below ground. There's a lesson there that you don't always have to take everything that you plant to gain from what you've done. With that, let's get into uh, the... Uh, well, no, i got to remind you real quick about MSB, man. we got a sale going. Right, If you want to join the MSB right now, this is a great time. You can get a year of MSB by using discount code LIFE30, L-I-F-E-3-0, when you sign up. If you do that, you'll get uh, $30 for your first year and every other year from there on. So this is one of the best MSB sales I've run. If you want to give it a shot and sign up for six months, i got a discount code for you, too. Um, it is a uh, for six-month membership for only 15 bucks. Discount code is TRY15, T-R-Y-1-5. You can use either one of those codes by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members to sign up. That sale is going to run until midnight central time uh, coming on February 15th. So just a real quick shout-out about that. And then another thing, hey, what about Permaculture Voices 3? Here's what I want to know. Are you going? Are you going to PV3? If you are, I want to make sure that I have an email list where I can reach just about everybody that's coming to PV3. So what I'm going to be doing uh, later today is I'll put out a little blog post with a little form in it for my AWeber. And if you fill out that form, you'll be on my email distribution list for PV3. If we're going to have an event, if I'm going to do an impromptu Q&A, uh, anything like that, I'll be able to email everybody and let everybody know. Or if we decide to go have drinks somewhere in one of the evenings outside of the hotel or whatever, we'll be able to let everybody know and you'll be able to get a ping on your email. So that'll be coming out later today. want to make sure that we make sure the TSP contingent can all find each other. Uh, I'm happy to be the point person on that, but it's not all about me. If we set up a meetup, that way at least when everybody gets together, you go, okay, everybody here is from the TSP audience. We're usually the biggest group at Permaculture Voices. I don't know why. It's maybe because we're the kind of people that get stuff done. Anyway, hope to see a lot of you at Permaculture Voices 3. There are still some tickets available. You can learn more at permaculturevoices.com. Remember, I will be giving two talks there. One on building a profitable business using ducks, and there'll be a lot of business acumen in that, not just the duck stuff, but it's going to be quite technical on the ducks. A lot of other really great speakers, Darby Simpson's going to be there, uh, Curtis Stone's going to be there, great people to meet and hang out with. The networking is worth more than the education, and the education is priceless. I'll, I'll put it to you that way. So if you, uh, if you want to be able to hook up with other TSP members, watch for that blog post to come out later today, fill out the form. And this is not like the email list for the site or whatever. I will only use it for that purpose. And when PV3 is over, I will nuke that list. It will go away into oblivion. You have my word. I never break my word to my audience. With that, let's get into the uh, first question that we have for today's show. This one is for old Dr. Bones, one of my best friends. Uh, Bones and Amy are actually extremely close friends with Spirit Coast. We're going to get to see them, I think, next month. Uh, they're going to be in town. I think Dorothy wants to go bowling, so we'll see how uh, how Nurse Amy is with a bowling ball while they're here. But I have a, a question for Doc Bones, and this question comes from Neil, and it's in regards to NyQuil. And with that, old Doc Bones, man, take it away. 
Hey, this is Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of www.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find close to 800 articles on medical preparedness for any disaster, and the co-author of the Survival Medicine Handbook. This week's question comes from Neil, who asks, Do you have a replacement for NyQuil? I know this stuff is junk for your health, but when you're sick, it's the only thing I've found to dry you up and get you to sleep. I try not to use it, but when one is in bad shape, well, it is what it is. Neil, sleep deprivation is one of the major issues that will impact work efficiency and decrease your chances for survival in times of trouble, especially for those who haven't put together a mutual assistance group. Lugging water and supplies, chopping wood and keeping watch over the perimeter is a 24-hour job. You'll need a number of like-minded people to help you. Going it alone is hazardous to your health. You might survive, but boy, it would be a miserable existence. As for a replacement for NyQuil, you should accumulate a stockpile of diphenhydramine, brand name Benadryl. You may know it as a way to stop itching from a rash, but the 50 milligram dosage is a serious sleep aid. I can't take it myself without getting drowsy and nodding off. Although it might not do that to everyone, it's worth a shot and it makes my list of the top 10 over-the-counter medications that you should keep in your survival storage. And I mean in quantity. There are a lot of herbal teas that might help you sleep, and with my favorite being valerian root or passionflower. These have definite sedative effects. Some foods are also thought to be helpful in promoting a good night's sleep. They contain sleep-inducing or muscle-relaxing substances like melatonin, magnesium, or tryptophan. Oatmeal has melatonin. Milk has tryptophan. Almonds have tryptophan and magnesium. Bananas have melatonin and magnesium. And whole wheat bread helps release tryptophan into the body. I hope this helps. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hi, guys. This is Erica from Northwest Edible calling in to answer Todd's question about making an elderberry-flavored salad dressing. So Todd tells me that he has a great elderberry harvest. He's got a bunch of elderberries in the freezer, and he wants to use these berries to make a really good salad dressing, but doesn't quite know where to start. So let's just briefly cover what a salad dressing is and why you never need to spend your money on store-bought dressings ever again if you don't want to. And then we can go into some specifics for Todd and his elderberries. So fair warning, this is one of the many things I talk about in my book, The Hands on Home. So those of you who have been kind enough to buy a copy, some of this might sound really familiar. But for the rest of you, hopefully it'll be a little education in salad dressing. So when it comes to salad dressings, there's two basic categories, vinegar vinaigrettes and creamy dressings. And the vinaigrette is the most elemental of all salad dressings. It's at its most basic, just an oil and an acid like vinegar or lemon juice and an emulsifier. Now, an emulsifier is an ingredient that convinces the oil and the water part, that's the acid, like the vinegar, to mix together and not just separate out. And the most common emulsifier that we use in vinaigrettes is mustard. Even a small amount of prepared Dijon or spicy brown mustard, store-bought or or homemade does a really good job of binding oil and vinegar together to get a nice cohesive vinaigrette that will stay together for quite some time. So whenever you make a vinaigrette, a good starting place is three parts of oil to one part acid. So for example, you could mix up three tablespoons of olive oil, one tablespoon balsamic vinegar, a little blob of Dijon mustard, and voila, mix it up, instant balsamic vinaigrette. 
Then, of course, if you like your dressing more tangy, you can increase the vinegar a touch. If you like it a little more mild, you can decrease it. You can play around with different oils, different vinegars, um, different citrus juices for another alternate acid instead of the vinegar. Or you can start to add in herbs or garlic or other seasonings as you like to the mix. So really, this is so, so versatile, but that three to one oil to vinegar ratio is a great starting place for vinaigrettes in general. Now, a creamy dressing is similar, oil and acid combined, but typically the emulsifier with creamy dressings is even stronger, so we can get that thicker, almost whipped texture that's popular for things like blue cheese dressings, ranch dressing, etc. So egg yolk is a very, very strong emulsifier, which is why you find it in classic creamy dressings like Caesar. Usually raw or lightly coddled egg yolk is the base for a homemade Caesar dressing. But the most fundamental of creamy dressings is actually mayonnaise, which is just oil and lemon juice bound together with egg or egg yolk. Now, we tend to think about mayonnaise as a sandwich spread, not a salad dressing, but mayo is really sort of the mother sauce for dozens of different creamy salad dressings. Now, parenthetically, the sauce that we call hollandaise, which is that sort of delicious, warm, yellow goo that we pour over eggs benedict, that's fundamentally just a sort of mayonnaise made with clarified butter instead of oil. And it's cooked gently, so there's a little bit of a difference there. But when you start to think about salad dressings and sauces as just sort of variations on a theme, you'll see how how easy it really is to start making your own. Anyway, back to Todd's specific question about working his elderberry harvest into a salad dressing. The easiest way to do this is via the intermediary step of jam or jelly. Now, you can turn any jam or jelly into a great fruity salad dressing with the following formula. Two tablespoons of jam or jelly, any kind, a teaspoon of Dijon or spicy mustard, two tablespoons of apple cider vinegar or lemon juice, and four to six tablespoons of mild olive oil. Just mix all that together, add salt and pepper to taste, adjust the sweetness and acid to your preference, and you're done. And what's really nice about this is it's a great way to use up the end bits of a jar of jam. So how this works in my house is the kids eat peanut butter and blackberry jam sandwiches, and eventually that jam jar is nearly empty, but not quite empty. And what I do then is just add the oil, the mustard, and the vinegar, and any seasonings I want right to the jam jar with those dregs of jam at the bottom. Pop a tight lid on that jar, shake everything up really good, and it will emulsify right in the jar, and I'll get a blackberry vinaigrette ready to go without even making another bowl dirty, which in my house is a very good thing. So this formula works really well with pretty much any jam, jelly, or marmalade. So just put a little thought into the vinegar or other acid that you're pairing with your jam. For example, you could use marmalade with lime juice for a nice refreshing citrus vinaigrette. You could use strawberry jam and balsamic vinegar and then add some fresh basil right at the end for a strawberry basil balsamic vinegar. It would be excellent. Um, you could pair apricot jam with rice wine vinegar and maybe a little touch of curry powder for a curried apricot vinaigrette. And wouldn't that be good over like an Asian style chopped chicken salad with some cashews and snow peas? So the name of the game here is salad dressing versatility. One basic formula for jam salad dressing, infinite variations. So, Todd, if you eat jam in your family, I would take some of those frozen elderberries and make elderberry jelly. I'd say jelly because elderberries tend to be quite seedy, so um, might not be ideal for jam. Elderberries do have a fair bit of pectin, so I doubt you're going to need to add a lot of extra pectin to get a nice firm gel from your elderberry jelly. Um, but if you need to, you can just add a little bit in when you're cooking it down. And then you just use that elderberry jelly to make the jam 
using the formula we talked about, and it's so simple. Now, one other option for Todd is to make an elderberry vinegar. And Todd, you could use this um, instead of the jam technique for your salad dressings, or you could use it in addition to the jam technique. And all you would do here is fill a good quart-sized mason jar about half full of your elderberries and then cover those berries with vinegar. I think I'd use apple cider vinegar for this, just for the flavor. Let those berries soak in the vinegar for, you know, two or three weeks or until you like the flavor, and then just strain everything really well. You'll have a great great elderberry vinegar that will probably be a beautiful dark purple color. I've done something just like this, but using aronia berries, which have a very sort of similar uh, flavor and color profile to the dark elderberries. And the color that I get from an infused aronia vinegar is incredible. So quite a few options here, but I think that the basic jam salad dressing is probably the simplest way to achieve Todd's goal of an elderberry salad dressing that tastes great and is really easy. So thank you, Todd, for your question on elderberries. Thank you, TSP community, for all of your great questions, and Jack, for everything you do. I'll be back in a couple of weeks to answer another question. In the meantime, come say hi anytime at Northwest Edible Life, nwedible.com, or facebook.com slash nwedible. Thank you, guys, and I'll talk to you later. You know, guys, I know I talk a lot about meat and eating meat, but I eat my fair share of vegetables and salad, too. As, as Gary said, like, vegan and paleo have a lot of things in common other than the lack of meat and fat in a vegan diet, right? So, like, a, a paleo diet is like eating vegan without grain and then adding meat and eggs to it and fish. Sounds pretty good. But there's a lot of that vegetative component to the diet, So I want to throw a little thing at you for a, um, a salad dressing. And do your blender, food processor, Nutribullet, whatever. Uh, throw, throw a handful of frozen raspberries. Then take two Meyer lemons, cut them in half, juice them into there. Take a zester. Before you do that, zest the zest off one of the Meyer lemons. Add the zest of one of the lemons and juice them both into there. Then add, this is going to sound crazy, peel and de-seed a half a cucumber. Throw that in there. And then add a couple shots of your choice of uh, red wine vinegar, and then just a pinch of thyme and a pinch of rosemary. Blend that. Try it as a salad dressing. Let me know how it works out. Yeah, the survivalist can make salad dressing. I can do just about anything, guys. It's called being a modern renaissance man. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take your next question. This one is for Old Grouch himself, Tim Glantz from Old Grouch Military Surplus. The basics of the uh, question are, what is the best military vehicle for pulling a trailer with medium-sized equipment on it? I have some thoughts on that from my ancient days in the military as a diesel mechanic, but uh, I'm going to leave this one to the true expert, Tim Glantz of Old Grouch Military Surplus. Fill us in, Tim. Hey, Jack. Everybody out there in TSP land. This is Tim Glantz with the Old Grouch's Military Surplus with a question from Cameron about the best military vehicle for pulling a trailer with some medium-sized equipment. Uh, and his question, I work for an excavation company and can borrow their equipment and trailer for my dirt work projects. The problem is I need a truck to pull it in mud, snow, and up some gravel roads so a normal dump truck won't cut it. Would a deuce and a half, five ton, or something else be best? The trailer is a pinnel hitch that is normally pulled with a Peterbilt dump truck. The equipment, excavators and dozers, weighs between 5,000 and 4,000 pounds. I want to consider reliability and partability of my decision as well. Thank you. 
Well, Cameron, you didn't mention a budget, but I'll mention some things all in there also. Uh, I'm also going to assume, working for an excavation company, that you do have a commercial driver's license, as that's a must in all the examples uh, for the weights we're talking about. Uh, first thing for everybody, when it comes to towing and safety, most people think of horsepower and torque as their biggest concerns. But in reality, your first concern needs to be braking power. Uh, that is the limiting factor on a towing capability in most vehicles, the safe tow rating, and it's the one that most people ignore, and it's the one that causes the most accidents when they ignore it. It's okay if you go a little slow up a hill or take a little longer getting somewhere when you're pulling a heavy load. It is not okay if you can't stop the trailer and tra- tractor and trailer or vehicle and trailer combination in a safe and controlled manner in an emergency or even in the course of normal driving. And believe me, I've seen it. I've seen people load up a thing and go, oh, this has got plenty of horsepower. I, I built up the engine. They haven't done a thing to the brakes. They, their, their brakes aren't adjusted well. Their trailer brakes aren't working right. And they go to panic stop. The vehicle gets away from them. They end up in an accident. Happens all the time. Uh, so first thing I'm going to say is don't use a two-and-a-half-ton truck or a deuce and a half. Number one, they're not actually rated for a big towing capacity. Uh, and worse, the brakes are not great on them. Um, they've got single-circuit brakes in almost all of them except the late 80s, which is a 1950s design. They're air over hydraulic, uh, so you have a regular hydraulic master cylinder. And where most of our cars will have two lines coming out for two circuits for front and rear, these just have one line that comes out that branches to all three axles. And what that means is if you get one leak any place in that system, any of those wheel cylinders, any line, your entire system has lost its pressure. In your normal car that you drive, you can lose the front brakes to the rear brakes, and the other half will still work. Not very efficiently, but it'll still work. So when you lose the brakes on a deuce and a half, you lose them. The other concern is uh, being air over hydraulic instead of pure air brakes. When you lose the air pressure in a deuce and a half, you just don't have brakes. When you've got real air brakes on a vehicle, when you lose the air pressure, the brakes lock up. And much safer. You know, not either one. Neither of those is ideal, but I would much have rather have my brakes lock up on me than to be gone altogether towing a heavy load. Uh, for this work, a five ton is probably your best option when it comes down to good price and ability to do the job. And in my opinion, for what's out there in the market now, the best option is the 900 series trucks. So like the 923, 939, that series. Not the A1 or A2, but the straight 900 series. There were three generations of those. And the biggest difference is the straight 900 series, instead of the big super single tire, had 1100 R20 tires and had dual uh, wheels and tires on the rear axles. Your engine is a common NHC 250 and Allison transmission. Both have good parts availability, and any good old school diesel mechanic can work on them. They're all mechanical, no computers required. Uh, the 1100 R20 tires can be had at most local tire shops, and they're familiar and can deal with them. Whereas when you get into your big 1400 R20 super singles, you're going to buy them on the surplus market, buying used ones only, and uh, you're probably going to have to travel to get them. Uh, if you find a USMC version of the truck, they actually have locking differentials in the rear for better off-road performance where the others don't. Uh, or there are a lot of USMC trucks being scrapped right now under contracts, and if somebody gets a regular truck, I can put you in touch with people that actually have the uh, lockers or complete axles they've removed from them, and a lot of folks are just swapping one locking axle in. 
Um, the least expensive diversion right now tends to be the M931 tractor that is set up for fifth wheel towing. And some guys are even buying those and then putting deuce and a half beds on them to make like a short wheel based cargo truck. By the book, a five ton is rated for towing 15,000 pounds uh, with the pinnel hook. By the book. Reality is I and everyone else in the military have towed well over 15,000. Uh, the truck itself weighs more than that. So anytime you know you have to use a tow bar for one five ton to tow another five ton, you're over 15,000. You know, by the book, you know, once again, 15,000. That's the way the military rates it because they don't ever want the tow vehicle to weigh less than a load or have the same weight. How much t- weight you can tow, uh, I can't tell you for sure because it's going to be a matter of your comfort level driving and the terrain and the equipment. I personally wouldn't be comfortable towing a 40,000-pound piece of equipment, which was your upper range, via a pinnel hook uh, on a five-ton, but I've known people that done it. Part of that is I live in the mountains. Uh, people I know that have done it are mostly out in flatter country. Because uh, by the time you've got a trailer that can hold the 40,000 pounds, you're, you're up, you know, pushing 50, 55,000 pounds, and that is, that's a huge load for a tote on a pinnel hook. You have to consider that even at low speed, off-road and rough terrain towing places much more strain on the trailer, the tow vehicle, and the hitch than on-road towing, and make some of your decisions in, with that in mind. Me personally, if I was going to tow equipment with a total trailer and load weight, uh, of over 25,000 on public roads, I would probably look at the 931 tractor and a short wheel based flatbed semi trailer to tow with the fifth wheel. If I was limited to doing this t- towing only at low speeds and not on the public highway, you know, if you've got to go to get to your location that's off the public roads, I'd probably be more willing to go higher on a pinnel hook towed load because I'm not putting the public in danger if, if, if something goes wrong. Uh, I would add some reinforcement to strengthen the mount up for the frame where the hook is secured and possibly move up to even a bigger, stronger pinnel hook on the truck. Because uh, in my books, better safe than sorry. A little caution and extra prep now can save you a ton of heartache and damage later. I tell people all the time messing with these trucks, you know, accidents here from carelessness can can be deadly. And, you know, you might kill yourself, you might kill somebody else out on the road and, uh, that's just a ball of worms you don't want to go into. If you don't want to spend, spend, if you don't mind spending more money, uh, you can also think, look at getting one of the M936 five-ton wreckers. They were actually built with a heavier frame and by the book are rated to tow 20,000 pounds more, 20,000 pounds by the pinnel and are capable of more than that. They do have the rotating crane on the bed that gives some great utility value as well for a lot of things around a homestead or farm depending on what you're doing. Um, my one warning, you will have a lot of maintenance and upkeep for the hydraulics on a wrecker. And uh, owning one of those can get expensive in a hurry as all those exposed hy- hydraulic hose- hoses start to age. And a friend who just had to replace every single hydraulic hose on a wrecker he's got. And doing labor himself, he was in it about 50, 60 hours time. And it cost him, I want to say, about $4,000 for all the hoses and fittings to be made because a lot of them were specialty pieces. Uh, so unless you've got a lot of use for the wrecker, you know, keep that in mind. Uh, if money and budget is not as much of an object, I'd look at the NIM 916 and A1 and A2 road tractors. 
Those are full-on Freightliner road tractors with heavier suspension and a live front axle, so they're six-wheel drive. Uh, they'll tow anything in the world you want, but they don't come cheap. There are not a lot of them that have been surplused, and they're in big demand working out in the oil fields and things like that. Um, I hope this gives you some general ideas. Whatever you do, be safe with it. I, I can't stress that enough. Be safe. You know, be comfortable with your load. Make sure your trailer brakes are 100% functioning and are properly adjusted and everything's hooked up well. And uh, don't get in a hurry. And if you have any more questions, feel free to reach out to me. Catch my website on, on uh, catch my email on my website at oldgrouse.com. And hope everybody has a great day. So, yeah, um, right at the beginning, Tim said 5,000 to 4,000. He meant 5,000 to 40,000. And I think there's a huge difference there, too. Uh, we have towed um, 7,800-pound excavators with a trailer that we rented uh, from the excavator rental place uh, with my F-350 pickup. And he, I even had one time a friend of mine towed it with his half-ton Chevy. I wouldn't recommend going up and down gravel roads with that, but tr towing it the 10 miles it took to do that was really not that big a deal. Towing it with my F-350 was like nothing, right? So, and I've got trailer brakes and stuff, yeah, trailer brake relays and stuff on that truck, so we were able to plug right into the trailer brakes on the trailer we rented and everything was fine. Um, so there's a big variation there. And I'm with Tim, though. If you're going to invest in military surplus trucks and you wanted towing to be one of the things it does... I would look at the 900 series. I worked on deuce and a halfs a lot, and I worked on 900 series a lot, and I can tell you that I preferred the 900 series in every way. But I'm going to give you one thing that probably I'm one of the only people that would ever give you this piece of advice with the 900 series. It revolves the, the air brake relay valves, or as we call them the UFO valves, because there's so many things going in and out of them up underneath the truck. They're kind of up in the center uh, near the, the rear axle, and then there's another one in the front. Uh, th th these are the the like the, the universal uh, valves for all of the air pressure that goes to the fail safes on the brakes. So if there's an air pressure leak on a 900 series and many other trucks with air brakes, what happens is the brakes lock up, and you'll look and you see these big cans where the air brakes are. There's a bolt there. You can take that bolt out and you can shove that in there, and turn it with a, like a key lock, and put a nut on it and tighten it up, and it actually releases the brakes. This is so that if that truck fails and needs to be towed home, that when the, the record gets there to do it, you can actually disengage the brakes, because otherwise they're not coming off until that air system is fixed. So wherever that air leak is. So in, in Panama, we started having these older trucks that had been not really used very much. One after the other, when it would go out, or just even when the driver would come in that never drove the damn thing once a week for their PMCS and did a you know put put it through the test and started it up and would pull it a couple feet forward, it would just like all the air would dump out of it. And these valves are expensive and they're hard to find. Okay, <laughs> and you think you need to replace them? What we figured out, because we had a shortage on them, is if you took it off, took it apart, pretty intuitive, take it apart, put it back together, it's not hard. All the valves on, if you, if you greased them up, put it back together, it worked just fine. And it would work for, you know, I did fix some of them the first year I was there, and I stayed two years, and they were still fine two years later. And what we ended up doing is we would we, we got into a rhythm where about once, even though this was not part of the, the maintenance checks and services, in the standard manual, that when we did an oh, you know, just our basic six-month maintenance for the 900 series, we would take that valve off, take it, take it apart, clean it, 
and, and lube up all of the, the gaskets in it and put it back together, we stopped having the problem. And I can't think of a, a shittier thing than to be towing a heavy piece of equipment up a gravel road and have your 900 series go, and your brakes just go, and you're stuck, especially like on a turn or something where there's barely enough room for somebody coming the other way to get around. That sounds like a really bad thing. So if I were to get a 900 series, I would probably service that valve on a 90-day rotation. And the less I drove the truck from experience, the more I would make it a habit. And once you get the hang of it, it's a simple deal. It's a simple deal. It was like one of those things that like, Sergeant Major's coming. We need to look like we're working. Yeah, go service some, some, some UFO valves because it needed to happen anyway. And it was like nobody really cared. It's not a hard job. So um, just a little extra tip there. And ditto on the, the, the 931 tractor. The, the unit I was in, we had um, totally different. We had the 917 series, which are more of the semi-trucks for bobtails. Uh, we, had, we had a couple five-ton bobtails. Most of our five-tons were the, the cargo trucks. The, uh, I don't remember the full 900, what they are, but with the big cargo beds on them and the wood sideboards and 50-cal mounts up on the roof. But... Um, it, For towing, a fifth wheel built beats a pinnel hitch, hands down, in so many ways. I mean, I'm not going to go deep into it now, but in so many ways. So I figured I'd add that on. Next question I have today is for uh, Ben Falk, and it has to do with uh, planting a regenerative black locust fuel forest uh, along the lines of a seven-year rotation. How do we take and manage black locusts so that we can constantly take fuel wood and yet never actually have to kill a tree? Uh, that actually can be done. Ben, talk to us a little bit about that. Hi, Jack and all. Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design. And a question about black locust um, fuel wood production. We are just getting into harvesting our black locust, and we're about six, seven, eight years in. Maybe our first planting is probably nine years old now, but um, generally most of our plantings are in about year seven and eight Um And basically, we have really good-sized fence posts with those oldest trees. Um, they're, I mean, they're big enough for firewood, but I'm going to wait longer. I thought I'd probably be on like a seven-year rotation, which I think would be great if I had a rocket stove, which I don't want a rocket stove in my situation. But if I was in a warmer climate, a more mild climate, um, a rocket stove would probably make more sense, and then I would be more inclined to harvest around this period. Um, and so I, I'm more interested in letting them get pretty big, like instead of like six to eight inch diameter, which they're starting to get to now, letting them to get to more like 10 to 14 and harvesting then. Um, they're pretty clear in terms of because they're spacing, so splitting won't be too much of a problem. Uh, at the same time, if I had m more of them, I might be more inclined to harvest pole wood. The problem with harvesting at this stage, although it's really attractive, you don't have to split, the ratio of slash to the amount of bowl wood of the trunk is poor compared to letting them get bigger and having more slash but having much more bowl wood, like actual BTUs to bust up and you know buck and split and burn. Um, and that's one of the reasons that I think in forested parts of the world, actually harvesting 
good sized trees for firewood is really viable. I remember when Jeff Lawton was at my place, he, he, you know, saw these large trees that we had harvested and everyone harvests in Vermont and New England for firewood. And I think was kind of like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. You know, you should be harvesting on, on quicker rotation wood for rocket stoves. But in these very cold climates that are very forested, it's actually a lot less work to harvest big trees. Um, and one of those reasons is because of the slash to bowl wood ratio. Slash is a pain in the ass to deal with. It's like the last thing you want to mess around with on your property pretty much is slash. It's just a, it's, it's very labor intensive. And it gets in your way, and it's not very valuable, and it's hard to deal with. So you want to keep Slash out of your life. Um, so anyway, that's a little bit of an aside, but it's important because it affects the management and the timing and the rotation of everything. What I'm finding is for clear wood, for like lumber, although not also good for building, not just for building materials, but for fuel wood, which is what you're asking about, I've got everything planted in terms of spacing. I've got stuff planted between like 18 inch on centers and like a grid to like three, four foot is the most I have them spaced out in a lineal row. Um, I think if I had the space and I wanted like a matrix planting and patch planting uh, blocks, I would probably go with like three to five foot on centers, two to five foot on centers, depending on how fast I wanted to harvest, which would be dependent on how I wanted to burn them, as I was saying earlier on. And so I'd go to two to five foot centers in a grid and, you know, plant whatever thousands of square feet of that or acres of that. Um, and you would just be harvesting all at once. And I'd probably coppice then. Pollarding is pretty dangerous when you get into decent-sized trees. I almost crushed my foot about five years ago, pollarding red maple. Holding a chainsaw above your head is not generally where you want it to be. And then also the the it's tiring. And it's also um, dangerous when the actual um, trunk falls away. And, I mean, you know, it's harder to make your cuts correct when you're reaching above your head or even at chest level, you want to be cutting low. So I don't see an advantage to pollarding except from a deer browse perspective, but black locust isn't very browse prone anyways, so that's not probably a big issue, depending where you are, of course, and some other management goal needs as well. If you want to keep a living fence, then you want a pollard versus coppice. So there's a lot of variables, as always, um, but those are some to consider. Um yeah, I think that's a, a good overview. I mean, you know, in general, clear wood's a good thing. So you're going to manage like you would for building materials or fire or fuel wood both because you want to be able to split or have, you know, have clear wood for splitting or have clear wood for actually bu- uh, building and milling um, or craft, even if you're not milling. So those are some of uh, the approaches, you know, we're taking. I, I think for a lot of firewood and building materials, black locusts are going to be in like a 10, starting a 10-year rotation and getting up towards like 2025. So I think the sweet spot with a black locust plantation is going to be like 10 to 25 year. Um, but certainly for fence posts, you're in on it in like four, f- five-year to nine year, so like four to eight, call it somewhere in there. Uh, I think is where you are in most climates for for fence posts. Um, it's a great great plant, as you probably are well aware of. Um, 
But you can also get the wood for very cheap in some places because people are trying to get rid of it. Um, so best of luck to you. Yeah, I, I take a bit of a different look at this, but again, I'm in a totally different climate than Ben. Uh, in, in our usage of black locusts, we are putting them in in a variety of uh, support uh, reasons. They're a great bee plant for three months out of the year. They are an incredible uh, fence post option, and you know, guys, for me, that's a big deal, having a tree that can become a fence post. When right now my fence posts are basically um, cinder blocks filled with concrete with a with a T post in them, that's pretty attractive to me. But we will be pollarding our long term black locusts that we keep. We will be pollarding, and we will be pollarding them at about oh about mid chest height on a man, which to me, if I want to take down a whole tree at that height, is not that big of a chore to do, uh, especially trees that have been specifically planted for harvest. So they're set up to, 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 you know, drop a tree where I can knock a nail in the ground or something. Because if I get it two feet either way, I'm going to be taken out of house or something like that. And once that initial pollard is done and you end up with a scaffold at the height of the pollard, then what you're taking down is your, your shoots, your, your lateral branches. So at that point, what you're actually able to do is drop a single branch at a time. And dropping that branch at about chest to face height is actually very convenient and quite easy to do, and much easier than doing with a chainsaw over your head. I I have trees that I have to deal with right now that are existing trees where I've had to do that, and I, I'm with Ben. I don't like it. If I get the tree much higher than maybe, um, if the, if the, the, not the blade, but if the body of the saw is above my eye level, I'm getting out a lopper saw uh, with a pole, and I'm standing at a distance doing it. it, it just It's just safer. So... But, as as Ben mentioned, he's firing up a big wood stove to heat a whole house. If you're using a rocket stove, or in our case, you know, we burn wood for ambiance uh, in, in a fire pit out in the middle of the yard. Uh, we built, built, burn wood in small, um, small rocket stoves and things like that, not for heat so much, but for cooking outdoors and stuff like that. We want wood that we can actually chunk up into, you know, hand fist size pieces for cooking over. I mean, for that, the, what Ben's calling slash, which is the totality of everything other than the trunk, the slash to us is all the, the leaves and stuff like that. Well, if you have a good chipper shredder, which is an investment we're going to be making this year, you take the main part of the, the, that, that branch. So when that branch comes off, you go through with a saw, and I have a little rechargeable electric saw, and you basically clean the branch of all that true slash, to me anyway, before you drop that limb, as, as high as you can reach safely. Then you drop the limb, then you take off the, 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 the narrow end of that limb, and then that piece of, of, of wood, that gets chunked up or cut up into, you know, buck that into two-foot sections and stack that and, and season it, and everything else goes in the chipper shredder, and with locusts you have this high nitrogen mulch. So we have a different goal set. So I think a rotation like that, we could be doing our first cutting in seven years, maybe six, And we could be recutting every four years at that point. And, and never, and, and then the big deal is I don't ever want that locust tree 20 feet tall. I don't ever want that locust tree 20 feet tall. I want that locust tree, the tops of that locust tree at 10 to 12 feet. And if it's, it's higher than that, it's coming back down and it's regrowing. So I think this is one of those big, it depends. What are you looking for as a fuel yield out of it? 
So I agree with Ben, but I have a different approach for my climate and my needs. And I think the reason I, I, I added that to this is so that we all understand that a lot of times you listen to an expert like Ben, you're like, I don't agree with that. Well, you don't agree with it for your goals if you have a totality of the understanding. So that's always what it is. It always has to be fit to the goals of the design and the designer rather than a hard, fast answer. As Jeff Lawton said when he was on the show last week, When you ask a question in permaculture, unless you're very specific, the answer is always it depends. Anyway, let's take another one. This one is for uh, Gary Collins on detoxification as a way to kickstart your way into paleo using like fa uh, juice fasting and stuff like that. So, Gary, what say you on this topic? Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method, and we have a Good question again about jump starting into the primal paleo lifestyle by implementing or starting with a detox or cleanse program. That's the first part. And also, uh, is there any way to kind of mitigate or lessen the symptoms of addiction to high fructose corn syrup and energy drinks? Well, that breaks down. It's just not high fructose corn syrup. It's sugar in general. And then energy drinks, caffeine. I'll talk a little bit about that after I talk about a cleanse program. Um, a cleanse detox program is an excellent way to go if you can do it. That is actually how I started on my journey several years ago. Uh, I didn't really know what I was doing. I, I kind of found I, I found a book. I don't remember what it is now. Um, and I just implemented what, what the author told me. It was primarily, from what I remember, is fruits, vegetables, all organic. Made that, made that very clear. It has to all be organic. Um, or, you know, from your farmer, from your own garden, if you're raising it properly, growing your food properly. No pesticides, no herbicides, no GMOs. And also, I want to say I added nuts and some eggs in there, but it's primarily fruits and vegetables, uh, not high sugar fruits. You know, you don't want to be eating nothing but five apples a day. I think I ate one or two pieces of fruit a day, primarily vegetables. The great thing I loved about the way this guy discussed it was there was no limitation on how much I could eat. And I do recommend that, even though it's going to be incredibly hard for you to eat the same amount of calories you were before with meat, fat, and everything in there, even though there is some fat. Um, avocados, I believe I could eat avocados, but you are basically getting rid of, you know, the biggest offenders. You're, you're trying to strip your diet down to the very, very basics. And it is pretty much vegan. I mean, he, he is dead. He talks about going vegan and it really is. That's what it is. Um, so that's what I would recommend. Like, don't buy it in a box with Julian Michaels face on it for God's sakes. Uh, Julian Michaels, uh, God, don't do it. Um, again, you're going to use food. You might want to go and find a, uh, you know, a practitioner who, who works with detoxes and cleanses all the time, but you can do it on your own. It's not, it's not rocket science. Just remember, you're going to be eliminating, you're going unlike it's kind of paleo a little bit because believe it or not, veganism and paleo have some similarities. There are some similarities in there. Um, but you're going to be eliminating meat, uh, all meat products, uh, I want to say what else was there? I can't remember if grains was okay in mine. I want to say no. But so you'd eliminate grains, meat, most animal products, if not all. And it's just a very, very basic diet. And what you're doing is 
you're giving your it's twofold. You're giving your digestive system just a break. And with that, you're kickstarting yourself because you're going to be calorie deficit, even though you can eat as much as you want. Trust me, try to eat all the fruits and vegetables all day long. It is you just you, you can't do it. There, there's so much fiber in there that you're going to have, you know, probably going to be bloated at times gas. And it's just it's a different way of eating. And I, I even I, I thought I was going to eat way more than I thought I was. And I, I found that I just was done after a while. It was it was it's an interesting process and it's different for everyone. But what you're doing is you're just kickstarting your body into an eliminate. You're trying to eliminate not only the offenders, but you by going calorie deficit and giving your digestion a break. What's going to happen is you're going to start speeding up that detoxification uh, window because what happens we're detoxifying all the time even if you're eating perfectly healthy you're exposed to chemicals in nature all the time organic chemicals uh, toxins you know there are things that are harmful to us there that's the way it is nature is not intended to be you know a big you know cocoon for us there are things that can harm us there are diseases toxins so what you're doing uh, by a lot of it's stored in your fat again. So what you're going to do is once you start getting burning that fat, because now you're in a calorie deficit, your body's going to be forced to burn that. Well, guess what you're going to do? That's going to get released into your bloodstream. It's got to get out through sweat. You're going to have to excrete stool, urine. It's going to have to break down and get out. So with that, if you can do it, he says he wants to do it for seven days. It actually for a good cleanse is 10 to 14. I want to say I got to 11 on mine. It was over 10. I remember that, but it wasn't quite 14. And I tweaked mine a little bit. Um, I had, I think I had eggs in there. Uh, gosh, I, you know what? I think you could add fish in mine later on at some point. Wild caught fish. Um, but with that, you know, it just depends. It, it, it might benefit you if you're going to go that route to work with a, a, a health practitioner or, you know, a, a someone who understands this world and, and has administered cleanses and detoxes and understands the, the primal paleo uh, ancestral health world, a naturopath, usually uh, NDs, naturopath doctors, they, they will have a cleanse program. So it's a great way, but Here's the kicker, and this is why most people can never do it. A, it takes time. It's really hard to do if you're in a work setting and you have to go to work. First of all, you're going to feel like crap. You're going to have a low to medium-grade flu symptoms, headache, nausea, uh, cold sweats, itching, maybe a rash, uh, fatigue, low energy, real cranky, uh, moody. So there's a whole host of things that kind of go along with it, and it's not really good in a work environment. And plus part of it too is to de-stress. You kind of want to take a time out. A lot of people prescribe you should read, you know, uh, go on hikes, walks. You can't really work out. It's all low because you're breaking down. You're not going to be able to rebuild anything. And I, I think I tried working out one day, and I was so dizzy that it was really stupid. So if you can do it, yes. You know, he talks about doing like a week-long vegan side, and honestly, a detox cleanse is pretty much vegan. It's it's it, paleo and veganism have some similarities, but they're not the same. Uh, to go from that cleanse and easing into paleo primal diet, 
lifestyle. It's a natural progression, but it's a very, very difficult one that very few people can do. I have seen a couple people do it, and I've worked with a couple people who did it. But for the most part, the cleanse is tough because it's really, really hard to stick with. And don't, and you don't make the mistake that I did. And what I did is when you get off the cleanse, you're supposed to slowly implement the food items you eliminated back in, which will be better if you go paleo primal because that is an elimination diet upon itself. That's what I call it because you're, you're, you're removing all the typical standard American foods that irritate and cause our deterioration in health. But I didn't. I, I, me being the dummy I am, I went out with my girlfriend like the day after and had a couple beers, went to a Mexican food restaurant. I was so sick. I can't even explain to you how sick I was. I felt awful immediately. But that, what that did to me is it told me, hey, you know, now you cleaned up your diet. You basically eliminated all this stuff. You can't bring this stuff back in. So that's what it does too is it makes it very, very difficult for you to cheat once you do that because now – You've eliminated all those things that your body had basically adapted to. You know, you were in pain and suffering all this time, but you'd gotten used to it. So once you take all that stuff out, and it takes about, I would say around the three day mark is where the, the symptoms peak in a cleanse. And then after that, it starts to get better and better. And by day seven, you feel pretty good. They, they call it a bounce where like all of a sudden you're like, wow, I feel fantastic. I have all this energy. You know, and that's because now you've turned the corner, you know, your body's kind of gotten rid of all that garbage. It's stored up and it's eliminated a lot of it. There's still some in there. It takes time, but yeah, that's a great way to go. And then he talks about, uh, how to curb, trying to curb the, the, the sugar and caffeine withdrawals. Well, that's the tough part with a cleanse is I don't recommend just cold turkey and sugar. I've had one client over my entire career working with people that was able to eliminate sugar, cold turkey, and made it. That's how hard it is. Uh, usually you have to taper it off. And it takes, again, 12 to 18 months to get over the sugar addiction symptoms. It acts just like a drug in your body. Studies have shown acts just like heroin, cocaine in the brain. So that's why these cleanses are so tough, and the ones in the boxes are BS. That's not you're going from one processed lifestyle into another one in a box to deep. doesn't make any sense. So you want to do it with food. Uh, caffeine's a little different. You can eliminate caffeine and get past the withdrawals anywhere from three to seven days, maybe nine, ten. And then once you get past that hump with caffeine, you're usually good. People can eliminate caffeine and do fine. I want to make it clear too is caffeine in itself is not bad, you know, but we over ingest it. You know, I, hey, I have to have a cup of coffee from time to time, but make sure it's organic. If you're going to drink your caffeinated tea, coffee, organic. Coffee and tea are two of the most heavily sprayed crops in the world for with pesticides and herbicides. So that's why you always want your coffee and tea to be clean. So I hope that helps. Um, it's I know this is a tough one, but if you can do it, I recommend it, and if you have any uh, further questions, hit it in the comments section. Thanks a lot. So my addition to this, uh, from from this perspective with Gary, is another similar thing to what I just did with Ben's, right? So it, it depends, right? So actually, I think detoxification by primarily going to uh, vegetables, fruits, juices is a good thing. 
Um, I'm more inclined to, to be the kind of person to say, some you do for 48 hours, and you do feel like crap. Well, you can do that over a weekend. And then if you immediately go to uh, back to, so you start out with paleo. You don't do this first. You start out with paleo, and you go through a lot of detoxing when you go into a paleo primal style diet in the first place. So you do that first. And some people feel pretty good. Some people feel good with a little bit of feeling like shit, and some people feel like crap. Uh, and he's right about the sugar thing, man. When you cut sugar wholesale out of your diet, uh, it takes a while. And then when the fat starts burning, there's so much toxins that's been in your body that you start releasing. So my thing is to, to go to a caloric deficit and start burning fat, we don't need to go off of meat. We need to go off of crap meat from a CAFO. We need to go off chicken you know, from a chicken house of horrors and eat pastured meats. Uh, we need to eat meats that are raised, you know, grass-fed beef, things like that with healthy fats in them. And you're going to naturally moderate your caloric intake when you eliminate sugar from that diet. So you're actually, with paleo especially, initially, all that fruit, at, at first, other than maybe something like strawberries, which are very low in carbohydrates, goes away. You go very, very fat, protein-centric, almost no carbohydrates. And then as you get into it, you can add natural sources of sugar in moderation, spread out, not concentrated into single meals. As you begin to do that, if you reach a plateau, this is where I like the idea of a, a cleansing uh, fast style thing. But this is my take on it. The body is not meant, I don't care if you're a vegan, I don't care if you want to try to make a case for this, I'm going to throw out one word at you, B12, okay? And, and what vegans say is, well, But all you need to do is take a B12 and then, you know, you can have a vegan diet. And Well, that's one major limitation that truly hits you in the face if you don't do it. The reality is most supplemental B12 in the form of tablets and capsules. I, 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 if you can get all pissed off at me if you want to, you can research this, you'll figure it out. Um, the body has a terrible time absorbing it. This is why elderly people, especially with pernicious anemia, when they have that problem, which is a lack of B12, you can feed them all the liver you want. A lot of times they've lost the ability to absorb it. They go get a B12 injection. And if you need B12 supplementation, then I recommend a sublingual form of B12 personally. That's how I feel based on my research and understanding. So if you're going to supplement B12, you've got to use a, a sublingual tablet to get a good absorption rate because in the absence of the proper total protein structure around it, your body can't absorb it worth dick. But even if it could, if you need to take a supplement on a diet just to not get sick, just to not to go into rancid deficiencies then a diet is not whole. So a vegan diet's not whole. Okay, You can disagree with me all you want, but if you're raising a child, especially a boy, on a vegan diet, I, I really wish you wouldn't. I'll leave it at that. Okay, So for everybody that's not in that camp, that accepts that meat's a good thing, this is how I recommend you consider taking these cleansing fasts. You cut your meat and fat down to minimal. So what that might mean is then you have a breakfast that's a salad, okay? It's a salad, and on that salad maybe you have one piece of bacon crumbled up. And then if there's any fats in it, they're, they're natural plant-based fats like avocado and things that Gary was talking about. Avocado, olive oil is fine. No dairy, no cheese, not because they're bad. Because you're, you're cleansing and you're letting your body go down to have a very minimal processing. So you've got this little bit of bacon. 
So one piece, crisp, crumbled. But that has a protein yield. And then maybe for lunch, what you have is you know fruit, vegetables, what have you, and maybe two ounces of pastured uh, chicken. Two ounces. And if you if you look at what two ounces, you'll understand what I'm saying. It's very minimal. You can go down an ounce if you want to. And then maybe for dinner, you have three or four slices with a great big salad and more vegetables and things like that of, of beautifully done, rare, pastured beef. But I'm talking, you know, again, you're down in that one to two ounce range. And then otherwise, you're drinking uh, fruit, vegetable juices. You're eating vegetables and fruits, and that's it. You do that for a 48-hour period. And that actually would mimic a lot of what our paleo ancestors would have had to do during a time where hunting wasn't successful. You forage off the land, and until your next big kill, you're eating little bits of meat. And I actually think that works rather well. And for a lot of times when you have a time where you've plateaued, and you're just not losing weight anymore, and you, and you still need to and you still want to, or you're just not feeling good, it, 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 that type of thing, and that's much more sustainable. You can do that for five days. Much easier than you can do it without any uh, meat product with, and without feeling a total crap. And if you get into the paleo primal lifestyle first and you get that initial purging of all these toxins because they are built up in your fat. And when it comes out, you're like, holy crap. Okay. When you do that first and then you're only doing this as like kind of a, uh, instead of a kickstart, kind of a, a reboot, that it works a lot better and you don't feel so deprived. And you don't get to where, like, I remember one time that I did this a long time ago before I discovered paleo, and I, I went on kind of like a vegan fast thing. It was never going to be a vegan, but, like, okay, I'll do it for a week. And by that Friday, I went to a friend's house. He threw a piece of mesquite wood on the fireplace. And I'm like, what are you, what are you, what are you cooking? He's like, nothing. I'm like, I, 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 there's meat here. And all it was was the mesquite smell. And, and I was salivating. And, and I, I, I don't think that putting your body into that state intentionally – Often is probably a good thing. Anyway, because it puts stress and all kinds of other things. Anyway, next question I have is for Michael Jordan, and it is uh, from someone who is a new beekeeper, a few years in, and has two batches of honey that are dramatically different. One crystallizing like crazy, and the other one not so much. Both treated the same way, handled the same way, collected from the same bees. Uh, and she wants to know how she can figure out what exactly is going on with her bees. So, Michael Jordan, I can think of no one better than you to talk about this subject. Take it away, Michael. Hello, and thank you for your question. I am Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer from a bee-friendly company, taking your questions on bees, apiary management, and mead making. I've got a question from Rachel from Ontario, Canada, who's a third-year beekeeper, managing 14 hives in a mixed forest of perennial and deciduous trees, and conventional agriculture is not in the area. She has stated that the collection of honey in July last year it was still liquidly and wonderful, but they collected honey in September and was wondering uh, as well, and it was wonderful as well, but it seems to have crystallized almost right away. Asking why do you think two honeys have such different consistency if all done the same way of collection and storage? Rachel, this is a great question on honey. I spent two years looking at honey in my travel so I could find the best for my meads. The one reason I became a beekeeper. <laughs> so, honey is highly concentrated sugar solution that contains more than 70% sugars and less than 20% water. 
There is much sugar in honey relative to the water content. This means that the water in honey contains extra amount of sugar that could be naturally held. The overabundance of sugar makes honey unstable. Different types of honey will crystallize at different rates. Some honeys crystallize within a few weeks after extraction from the comb, whereas others will remain liquid for months or even years. The time that will take honey to crystallize depends mostly on the ratio of fructose to glucose, and then the glucose to water ratio. Honey has a high glucose sugar with low fructose glucose ratio will crystallize more rapidly, such as alfalfa, cotton, dandelion, or just a few. Honey with higher fructose to glucose ratio, meaning it can't, contains less than 30% glucose, will crystallize quite slower and will stay liquid for several years without uh, treatment. You can see this in black lotus, sage, and tapilo. The higher the glucose, the lower the water content of honey, the faster the crystallization. Oppositely, honey with less glucose relatively to water is less saturated for the glucose solution and is slow to crystallize. Honey with the heightened water content often crystallizes unevenly and separates into crystallized liquid parts. The speed of honey to crystallize depends not only on its composition, but also to the presence of catalysts. And I mean like catalysts like seed granule crystals, pollen grain, pieces of beeswax that are in your honey. Uh, these minute particles might serve as a nuclei for crystallization. Raw honey, untreated and unfiltered, contains bits of wax, pollen, propolis, other things that make it crystallize faster. It's used as a catalyst. Honey that has been processed, heated or filtered, remains in its liquid form longer due to the fact that honey is that is done this way kind of eliminates that nuclei, which encourages the growth for glucose crystallization. So, Rachel, with your honey, and here's why. Every drop of nectar that a bee has turned into honey is different. Even if the bees are in the same field or location, each plant is different, and this goes from year to year, no matter if it's an annually planted or perennial growth. This is due to so many things like water of the year, suns, temperatures, ground nutrition, types of cross-pollinization. I mean, there is a lot of things that contribute to the making of honey. Uh... Every plant, even if you grow clover, each individual plant is from its own seed, maybe containing the same genetics of the line, but pulling different nutrients, maybe pollen by another plant, and may have poor circulation through the plant to get nutrients. So, there, I mean, there is a long list that makes this happen. Um, also... Um, there's not too many trees or plants that, that bloom twice to even three times a year to even get the same nectar. <laughs> the honey you, you got at the start of the year did not get all um, all the yeast effects in it, right? Not the pollen, not the wax, um, and other things that are floating in the air when it was collected and capped. It was the beginning of the year. 
the end of the year, there are tons of things going on. As I stated in the beginning, the more catalysts that are in the honey, the faster it will crystallize based on the water content of evaporation, glucose, and the fructose that makes the difference. Most of my honey that is sold at market comes from the first of the year. It stays longer on the shelf due to the lack it doesn't have the catalyst in it. Now, it does not crystallize right away, but due to the fact it is raw, it just takes longer. The end of the year, most of my honey goes to feeding back to my bees and making meads. The bees, I feel, need that good nutrients and stuff that they can get back. And it sets off my meads with some really good pollen in the honey for future flavoring. You can store honeys at higher temperatures, but you have to be careful so you do not kill off the enzymes and the pollens that are needed to make the high-selling items and that people really want when they're looking for good raw honey. So your honey is good. It, it, it may have come from the same plants, but they're diverse, and they, they, they come all different times of the year during floral. Um, at the end of the year, you may have more things that set it off, to be making it come crystallized, as well as the cooling temperatures. I want you to think about that, that when you're going in the first of the year and you're either cutting your uh, top bars down and solar extracting your honey or you're spinning it, you're going to get good, clear honey. Most of your honeys are a caro syrup at the beginning of the year, and this also depends on the type of plants that they are. Even your darker honey, such as buckwheat, at the beginning of the year that have people have done what they call transition planting, that at the beginning of the year, buckwheat may be dark, but it has a more clearer context to it than buckwheat would be at the end of the year, which would be a huge darker content. Both honeys are buckwheat. It is the seasonal change of sunlight, pollen, and all the other things that graduate together that could make the catalyst to make that honey go thicker towards the end of the year and crystallize faster. So I'm going to give you some quick notes on some stuff because honey is really big to me because of mead. I got into permaculture so I could grow the best plants to produce the best nectar. I got into beekeeping so I could have the best bees to collect the honey. And I have a 400-year-old recipe that I use this for. So on honey, the average honey is one to one and a half times sweeter on the dry weight basis than sugar. Liquid honey is approximately as sweet as sugar, yet contains 82.4 grams of carbohydrates. So a pound of honey is almost two and a half pounds of dry sugar. And on the pound end, a pound of dry honey is almost four times dry sugar. On looking at pollens for natural yeast as listed, and people in your honeys um, become more potent. Um, there are some really good books on looking at, at diversifying pollens for identification to see exactly where your pollens come from in your hive and to see what they are. You can get the Pollen Identification for Beekeepers by Rex Sawyer. It's a great book to see um, what your pollen is and what your bees are bringing in. William Kirk has a great flashcard book from Germany. That is great info, so you can actually see the color po uh, patterns of pollen from certain plants. Clover has three or four different types of pollens that you can actually look by striation 
and color because you have purple clover, white Dutch clover. They all have different color and pollen count, but segmented regiments when you look at the, the points of the pollen. So when you look at that, if you really want to know and get into pollen, pollen segmentation and feature evaluation for automatic classification in the bright field of microscopy is a great book. This book will bring pollen to the light in a microscope and help you with identifying intimate infractions of pollen. So if you really want to know what kind of pollen you're bringing in and you want to see the sugar contents of your honey, you can break this all down and see what's coming in the days and in at nights, beginning of the season, end of the season, get your sugar contents, your pollen counts, and actually see and identify throughout your honeycomb exactly what kind of honey is coming in at that time. Uh, I hope that I brought some light on, uh, on pollens and honey. I brought up all this on sugars and pollen for my brewing friends and looking for good sugars and yeast as well. Uh, I hope this is helping you on understanding why your honey is sugaring faster and sometimes and not, and how you can identify exactly what plants they're getting. So you can say, oh, I'm getting this honey in the, summer, in the beginning of the summer and it doesn't run as, uh, as, as fast or it runs way too much. You're going to actually see exactly what they're getting and you can diversify what your honey can be. Hey, I am the Bee Whisperer telling you to get your honey from a beekeeper you respect, buy from a cottage industry because we all had to start someplace, and help your fellow man. For one day you might need help too. Um, there's a lot of times I can hang with one of our council members on a lot of subjects. Not Michael, man. I, the guy is the encyclopedia of bees and everything to do with bees. Just amazing. Anyway, um, last question of the day is for Chef Keith Snow, and it has to do with uh, making a good selection when buying a wok. Uh, I'm actually interested in this one myself because I just decided to send one of our walks to Goodwill. Uh, we had a walk that I, I don't remember why we bought it, but it's like one of these with the special coatings, which is not really my favorite thing in the first place, and ridges in it, and you're not supposed to use any fat with it. And I, I don't know why we bought this thing, but I tried to use it recently and went, well, this thing's crap. We have another giant jumbo super walk that has a, a coating on it. I realized we don't actually own a really good walk. And I started thinking, well, why don't I actually do a lot of like stir fry with walks? Uh, well, maybe because you don't have a good one. So I'm interested as well. Question here is, Keith, can you recommend a good wok? I bought a heavy-duty islandware baking sheet you recommended, and I threw out all my old crap. Bought a second one. Now it's all I use. I'm looking for a rugged wok, probably carbon steel, but I'll listen to your expert advice on everything. This is from David, Chef Keith Snow. Uh, how do we select a good wok? What would you recommend? Hey, it's Chef Keith Snow from HarvestEating.com. I wanted to answer David's question regarding a wok. Now, David, um, it's a great thing that you want to get a wok. They're very fun to cook with, and I think when I cook with a wok, I generally consume lots of vegetables, good healthy protein, and it's a it's a balanced meal, and it's just fun and healthy to eat that type of food. Um, now, which wok? These are questions that people get confused on. The first thing I'll tell you is which wok you don't want. And that's going to be one that has any type of non-stick coating. And the reason for this is when you're doing proper wok cooking, and depending upon what type of stove you have, you mentioned something about a Volcano portable grill. Uh, with the name Volcano, I'll, I'll assume that it can crank out some heat. But um, 
sometimes people don't even have a stove that can really do proper wok cooking because it needs to be really hot. If you've ever been inside of a restaurant that um, uses woks, you know, where they're cooking oriental food, they have these burners and they're round. They're called hobs, H-O-B, and it's a circular thing. And if you remove the wok, there is a blue flame pumping out of there. It'll go two, two or three feet in the air. It's unbelievable how much power. They just turn a little valve and it's like a blowtorch on steroids. So they're getting intense heat. And they use carbon steel woks in most of these um, restaurants. And that's because the heat transfer is, is uh, nearly instant when you fire that thing up. Now, um, because of the high temperatures, and like I said, some stoves, you, you can turn them all the way up and just barely do wok cooking. If you have a gas stove or maybe a volcano grill and you're going to get good temperatures, you have to be careful what type of wok. Now, you don't want these non-stick woks that have a coating on there because most of these coatings just cannot handle, and I don't care what the manufacturer says, most of them will have a little use and care card and it'll say not to overheat it. And over time, you know, hitting it with metal utensils and hot and cold and hot and cold, that coating is going to break down. Now, that's not something that I want, um, number one, to be eating and number two, to be off-gassing. And that's the main problem with a lot of those coatings. And they have gotten much better um, since they first introduced them. But when you're putting this many BTUs on there, uh, you're going to have off-gassing, and that is nasty stuff. So don't buy one that's got any coating on it. The next type you could possibly encounter are stainless steel woks, and those are okay. Um, they tend to have a square bottom, a lot of them, and they take a little longer to heat up just because it's a thicker core on the bottom uh, than a carbon steel wok will do. And they do perform okay. They're a little heavy. Uh, what I do like about stainless steel uh, is that they don't rust. So you can wash it off, put it in the dish rack, and generally you're not going to have any rust. Um, also, there's enameled cast iron woks. Now, I've had one of these before, and they're very heavy. Again, they take a little bit more time to get hot, and they generally come in a flat bottom. Um, not my favorite. Now, they don't bounce around on the stove, and you've heard me mention the flat bottom thing twice. Uh, if you get a carbon steel wok, in general, they're going to be rounded, and that's just going to mean the seesaw effect is going to want to go up and down on your wok. But in any restaurant, supply store, or on Amazon, you can buy little round bases, and they just go right over your burner, and it's a support for your wok, so it will hold it nice and steady. But the um, enameled cast iron is just too heavy, and when it comes to moving it around, a wok is something that's active cooking. You're, you'll be flipping your food, moving it, turning it, and a big, heavy, flat bottom cast iron wok um, just isn't the way to go. And, and you know, I think the Chinese, and, and the, they're the ones that mainly use woks. I mean, there's other Asian cultures that do as well. I mean, they've been doing it for a long, long time, and you don't see them using enameled cast iron in the restaurants or places like that. They just have a good old uh, steel wok like that. So that's, in my opinion, the best one to have. That's the one that I currently have, and they're cheap, really cheap. I mean, I think I paid $17 or, or $20 for mine. Now, the caveat is they will rust. So when you get done cooking on it, um, you're going to want to scrub it out. And because it's steel, I mean, you can use um, all different types of, of you know, abrasives to clean it. But however you clean it, when it's done being cleaned, I do advise popping it back on the stove just to heat it up 
for, and you can't leave it there and forget, but heat it up for two minutes and then turn it off. And once it cools down, I like to take a paper towel with some, something like uh, grapeseed oil or, you know, a cheap oil and oil the entire wok inside and out. And a couple of times when my wife has cleaned the wok, she's forgot about this and she cleaned it and then put it into the dish rack. And of course, the entire thing is covered in rust. Very easy to get the rust off because it's only minor surface rust, but basically not a, a great thing to leave rust. Just want to be careful. That's the real um, challenge with them. Now, I do recommend trying to find one that's got a wooden handle. A lot of them will have uh, just a steel handle, and that thing does get hot after a while. But um, that's it, man. A good, a good steel, you know, shouldn't set you back more than twenty-five to forty dollars on eBay. And there's plenty of choices on there. Uh, just don't be uh, enticed by any non-stick or, or you know, eighty-dollar stainless steel models. I think you're better off with the the, uh, the regular carbon steel. So that's it. David, I hope uh, your wok cooking is tremendous. I want to thank everybody out there for supporting Harvest Eating. Uh, there's so many of you spice people out there and, and uh, pasta sauce fans. Uh, I greatly appreciate everybody's order and want to let you know the best place to get at, at this point is on Amazon. All of my products are now Amazon Prime enabled. That means you generally can get free shipping if you're a Prime member. So just do a search on, on uh, Amazon Harvest Eating Spices or Thoughtful Harvest Pasta Sauce. That's the best way to find it. As always, Jack, thanks so much for what you do. And everyone, take care. Well, cooking is one of my favorite things. I've, I've taken a look while Chef Keith was uh, talking on Amazon, and I, I'm not going to recommend anything yet because I haven't selected or tried anything yet for myself. But I did notice that there are actually quite a few uh, carbon steel walks that are flat-bottomed, but I'm highly tempted to pick up one that's round-bottomed the way they were originally made with a walk ring because a walk ring is like 5 bucks. And that, that seems to make a, a lot of sense to me. So if I find something I really like, I will let you guys know. I'm not seeing a lot of things for 15 to 20 bucks. I am seeing a lot of things for 25 to 40 bucks look pretty damn high quality there. And I'm kind of with Keith on the uh, wooden handle for being able to, uh, to handle the thing without a potholder. Um, that's something I always uh, like in, in cookware is to have a, a, a handle that where one reason or another doesn't get really hot and I can actually pick it up. About the only exception to that is my cast iron cookware, which I will never give up. Uh, I agree. I don't think it, cast iron would probably make the best wok, but when it comes to a skillet for making eggs and uh, duck sausage in, uh, they're really hard to beat. And with that, we've wrapped up the entire uh, lineup for the expert council today. I do hope you enjoyed listening to the extreme variety of stuff today, and I, I hope you are going to go out and make the most of your weekend this weekend. Uh, I know the Northeast is bracing for some pretty tough weather, but the rest of the country has actually gotten off with a pretty mild winter this year. Make the most of it, man, because before you know it, it'll be spring, and before you know it, it'll be summer, it'll be hot as blazes, and it, it, the time does move like that. Remember, I, I say this all the time, but there is no static in life. You're either moving toward your goals, you're either moving toward greater individual independence, liberty, and freedom for yourself. You're either moving toward greater preparedness, uh, being able to face the things that will come at you in life, uh, disasters, be they personal, uh, small, regional, or national in, in origin. You, th th that's the reality. You're either getting more prepared for life or you're getting less prepared for life. You can't stay static. You can't tread water in life. You know, if you think about treading water in the water, if somebody throws you in a pool and there's real steep high sides to it, and you can't get out, and all you can do is just sit there and tread water. 
you can do it for a while, but eventually you'll fatigue and, and, and you'll end up dead. You'll, you'll freeze to death, hypothermia, you'll drown one way or another. You can all, even floating is only so, you know, something you can do for so long. And being thrown into a pool like that kind of would put that in perspective for you, that the, there's nothing to grab onto, nothing to hold onto, and all you can do is tread water. Sooner or later, you're going to lose that battle, and you're going to sink. That's how life is, and it actually happens a lot quicker in life. It's just uh, you start sinking, and you, when you sink in life, you don't immediately die. You don't drown. Your, your, your lungs don't fill up with water. It's a long, slow process like going into a black hole. And that's why so many people wake up one day in their 40s, And look at their financial situation, they look at their situation with their family, the relationships with their friends and members of their community and everything else around them, and they put their hands on their face. And they think to themselves, my God, how did this happen? And it happened a little tiny bit at a time. And, and the good news is if you've already had that moment, that's kind of the rock bottom. People talk about recovering from an addiction, right? That you have to hit rock bottom before you go, you know, I'm willing to, to accept that I have this problem now. I'm willing to recover from it. Well, life's the same way. A lot of people are addicted to the, the easy way through life that always results in the hard way uh, of living eventually. Because it just seems like, screw it, I'll take care of it tomorrow. Screw it, it's not that big a deal. Screw it, it's only money. It doesn't matter. I'll just go ahead and buy this anyway, even though I know I don't really need it. Screw it, screw it, screw it. And, you know, especially if you're fortunate enough to have a decent job from your 20s to your, you know, like late 30s, you, you get away with it because you're servicing the debt load, you... You're relatively healthy, you know, if you don't get any kind of a, a, a out-of-left-field illness or something like that. When you do get sick or injured, you recover quicker uh, than you do as you get older. And you, you know, But one day you're in your 40s and you look back and you go, man, I'm. if I add half, if you're 45, let's say you're 40, and you say, if I add half of my life to my current age, I'll be 60. And you start to think about what that means. And then you realize, if I keep going at the rate that I'm going, if I, even if I stop spending money, I'm in debt now, for instance, and I just make the minimum payments on my debt, I'll, I'll still have half of my debt in 20 years. And the hands go in the face, my God, how did this happen? You know, I'm lucky. Dorothy and I sat down, God, I guess 15 years ago now. We had become really successful in life, as far as anybody could see. And we had that moment where we looked at how much debt we were in. We were in over $30,000 worth of credit card debt. And, and when we looked at that debt, we went, you know, I can blame 5000 of it on a, on a company that, that didn't pay expense reports that I didn't think was worth suing. The rest of it's ours, and, and we don't have a lot to show for it. You know, most of the stuff we bought with it is kind of end of life cycle at this point. What, what the hell did we do? And we made a decision. No more. No more. And it was the best decision we ever made in our lives. And it was it was three years from that decision to going, hey, we owe nothing on credit cards. We owe $3,000 on our truck. Write a check for it. It was $3,324, I remember, because I remember the day she said, this is all we owe on the truck. And I said, what's well, in the checking account? She told me. I said, write a check for it. And she didn't want to do it. And I said, given we have no other debt, if we had the truck paid off right now, and the bank said, we'll loan you $3,000 on the truck, would you take the loan? And she said, no, that would be stupid. 
And I said, so how is that different? And she thought about it, and her face turned red, and she said, son of a bitch, I'll do it, right? <laughs> and she did. And But then like a week later, you know, we heard from the company, you know, and basically they're sending us the title, and she was like, wow, that's that's it. It's, it's gone. Nothing but a mortgage. The mortgage is easy to pay. And so that... That was almost 13 years ago now. I haven't ever regretted it. I haven't ever regretted that decision. But when I have that conversation with you guys here at the end of today's show, I have to think about it this way. What if we didn't do that? What if we had not done that? You know, would, would, it, would, it, really, would it really have hurt us as bad as I think it would have. And I think the answer is it might have hurt us worse than I think it would have. What if we had never had that moment? We just had that moment now. You know, I, first of all, I don't think there would be a survival podcast. I don't think I would have been in a place to migrate from a six-figure income into this, this podcast when it was nowhere near capable at that point yet of providing that for us. I, I don't think we could have done any of the amazing things that we've done and, and worked with the amazing people we've worked with and had the the freedom and liberty that we've had. We had to make a decision to stop. And I'm telling you, we were in a situation where like our financial advisor, liar, I didn't call him financial liars yet, said, you guys are crazy. There's nothing to worry about. Yeah, maybe you could spend a little bit less on your credit cards and stuff like that, but like your income to debt ratio, everything's fine. I wonder how he's doing today. I wonder how he's doing today. Be interesting to know how his name was Drew. I wonder. I wonder how he's doing today. I, I hope he's doing well, but I, I'm, I'm willing to bet not so much. Even though he's supposed to be an expert in financial management, this was a guy when I decided I wanted to take some money out of my investments to to buy a second property. Suggested that I, I mortgage deeper into the property that we were living in, even though he knew I was about to sell that property. I mean, you got to think like there's a lot of people out there that supposedly know what they're talking about. But if their life looks like the average American's life, you probably don't need to be listening to them. You need to be listening to yourself. And I'm here to tell you guys, you young people that haven't even gotten started yet that think it's so tough, you know what? It is tough. Tough shit. Get on with it. You know, my son's looking for a better job finally. And he said, well, what do you think I should do? I said, I think you should apply for 50 jobs in one week. He's like, 50? I said, yeah, 50. I don't know if I can do that. I'm like, yeah, you can. In this day and age, sure you can. 50 in one week. You, you know, I told him you're not even good at interviewing for jobs because you've never really interviewed for a job. You've had one job your whole life. You interviewed inside the company one time for a major advancement. That's it. You need to go on job interviews for jobs you don't even want just to get experience interviewing. Guys, that's how it works. If I'm that tough with my son, don't you think I'd be that tough with you? You guys that are like in, you know around my age, in your 40s, late 40s, and mid-40s, and you're like, I don't have enough time left? Bullshit. Sure you do. You people that are in your like twenties and thirties, man, you got it. You got so much opportunity right now. And you folks that are older than me that are thinking, yeah, it's easy to say that when you're young. Yeah, you probably said that when you were my age too. I mean, again, a thing I say all the time is, if you can fog a mirror, you're not done yet. If somebody holds a piece of glass up in front of your mouth and it fogs, you still have life force in you, and you still have potential, and you still matter, and you can still get shit done. And I'm not going to give anybody a pity party, right? It's it's up to all of us to decide, what am I going to do with the time that I have? 
And how am I going to make my life more resilient and better? How am I going to make sure that if some shit hits the fan and it blows back and hits me, even if it doesn't hit my neighbor, that I'm able to wipe it off and move on with my life? What am I going to do if the power goes out? What am I going to do if I lose my job? Those questions are equally valid, and the problem with most Americans today is we don't have an answer. And you want to talk about the decline of liberty? The reason people are willing to support the presidential candidates that, are, that have any chance of winning this election that's coming up is because no one has an answer to those damn questions. People that have an answer to the questions of what am I going to do if, and you fill in the ten most likely things to screw things up for people, and they have an answer for them, aren't really interested in which ass clown is running our country and what goodies they're going to give away and who they're going to tax how much. Because again, liberty requires responsibility. Personal responsibility. That's the, the number one... See, everybody wants to talk about collective responsibility. right? Your responsibility to society, to your community, to your family. Hey, I'm all about that. First, see to yourself. That's not selfish. okay? And that's the big lie. The people that see to their own needs first are selfish. People that see to their own needs first are the only people who aren't selfish. They're the only people that aren't selfish. They're the only people that aren't using the excuse of having responsibilities to avoid their actual responsibilities. In the words of Richard Bach, the best way to avoid responsibilities is to say, I've got responsibilities. Because you cannot possibly... Be taking care of others if you're not taking care of yourself. Anything that you do that makes you think you are is an illusion. It's an illusion. All you're doing is you're getting enough from others that it's more than you need so then you can hand away some of some other people's shit. You're no better than a politician if that's you. You see to your own needs first. You see the ability to feed, clothe, and house yourself first. You see the ability that when you get paid... The next time you're paid, you're not dead broke a day before you get paid. Okay? You see to the fact that you're able to actually set up some surplus in your life before you worry about giving anything to anybody. Because then you'll actually be able to give a lot more to somebody than you ever will any other way. Most people are so worried about living a selfless life, what they actually do is live a very selfish life. They live a life based on credit. and They're mortgaging their family's future and their community's future just like our government is. You don't have to. It doesn't have to be that way. There is a better way. And if you worry about, well, what about everybody else? What if, I, what if I divorce myself from politics? What if I divorce myself from all these issues that I feel are so important that I actually feel helpless because I know I really don't influence them, but God, i got to keep at least telling people about them. No one gives a shit what you say. Okay? No one really gives a shit what I say. The minute you disagree with me politically, you don't care what I'm saying. Guess what? 100,000 people plus, 150,000 people a day listen to this show. And most of you even that like me when I say something you really disagree with, you don't really give a shit. If you did, you wouldn't keep listening. The people that really care when I say something they disagree with, they get really upset about it, they get mad, they get butthurt, and they quit listening. What everybody else does is say, I like that this is all great shit. I'm going to use this in my life. I'm going to do my life. It's going to work. Oh, you believe? Well, fine. We can't agree on everything. Screw that. I don't care. So when you're trying to convince your brother that Bernie Sanders is going to save America, or you're trying to convince your sister that Donald Trump's going to save America, and they don't agree with you, they don't give a shit. And if they already agree with you, they already think that. You're not even making a difference there. And guess what? Whichever ass clown's going to be our next president, it's going to be our next president, no matter what you do, no matter what you say, no matter what I do, no matter what I say, 
Doesn't matter. You are helpless in that. Your vote doesn't count. Your opinion doesn't count. And in the end, the only people that give a shit about your opinion are the ones that already have the same opinion or the ones that are so close to you, they think that by caring, they can switch your opinion to theirs. So you might as well get on a stationary bike that's not even hooked up to a power generator and sit there and drive a bike and think you're getting somewhere. And that's how most people live life. You don't have to. Kick the freaking bricks out from under the bike and go somewhere with it. Focus on what you actually control. And the first thing you control is yourself. In fact, the only thing you totally control is yourself. That's the, so that is, that is the starting point. And that doesn't mean that, well, he's selfish because you have to wait till you're a millionaire to help people or some nonsense, some idiot saying in their head right now. No. When you can basically stand on your own two feet and you don't need anyone, then you can be someone who is supportive of others. It's like saying, well, I'm worried about carrying the wounded off the battlefield, but I'm not worried about getting shot in the freaking shin. If you get shot in the shin, somebody's going to have to carry your ass off the battlefield. Right? And if you happen to grab another guy behind you just laying flat in his face is worse off than you by the belt, while another guy carries you, he's carrying both of you. Don't don't think you're doing that much. And that's how most Americans are living today. They're making excuses they're helping others or they're worried about others or we gotta do something for somebody else, but they haven't even got their own shit straight. They're 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 a non profit organization that hasn't ever made a profit some some other way. Professional pegging organization. That's what a lot of people in America are today. That's why they think they need government to solve their problems. That's why they think they need government to prevent other people from doing things they don't want other people to do. Because they're uncomfortable with other people having freedom and liberty. If it's messy. Freedom and liberty are messy. They're very messy. And there's going to be a lot of nonsense going on, man. There's going to be a lot of nonsense. Between now and November, you're going to see a shit ton of nonsense. So are you going to let it suck your energy? Are you going to let it pull you away from your goals in life? Or are you going to say, screw it? You're going to say, screw it, and say, you know what? Here's ten things I want to accomplish between now and November, and by God, I'm going to get those things done. And I just bet, I just bet me doing that's not going to change the course of history for America, but it will change the course in my life, and therefore the lives of those that I'll impact and touch in the future. There's two choices, guys. There's no there's no option C in a lot of this stuff. This the the the, the 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 distractions of society are designed to consume your energy and your life force. You put a toe in the water, and next thing you know, you're you're neck deep in the pool. And guess what's in the pool? Big floating piles of shit. And you start arguing with the guy in the pool next to you about which shit stinks worse. You're better than that. Our country's better than that. This community's better than that. Stand up, kick ass, take names, make the most out of your future, make the most out of your weekend. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. They called them crazy when they started out. 617's too young to know what love's about. They've been together 58 years now. That's crazy He brought home 67 bucks a week 
bought a little two-bedroom house on Maple Street Where she blessed him with six more miles to feed Now that's crazy Just ask him how he did it He'll say pull up a seat It'll only take a minute To tell you everything Be your best friend Tell the truth And overuse I love you Go to work And do your best And don't outsmart your common sense Never let your praying knees get lazy